Well, good morning. <laughs> My name is Bryce. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, great to be with you this morning. So a quick note on the Q&A. Danny asked if we're doing it, and um, it, it occurred to me that, so the way that it's set up, at least my understanding is that if you text a question to that number, Brad gets it in a text and I get it in, in, in an email. Um, last week, somebody other than Brad and I was preaching here, and, and there were two questions that he answered, and I didn't get those in my email. So either that means the thing doesn't work for me, or that Brad texted him those questions. That one? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I was just disclaimer, because you might text questions, and I'll say at the end, there were no questions this week, and it's just because my phone is broken or something. But okay, but feel free to text questions. That'll be, that'll be really fun, especially with this psalm. Um, okay, so this psalm, Psalm 94, is a psalm that... Um, I would imagine you would probably only hear a sermon on if you're at a church that is going consecutively through um, so the, the book of Psalms and you get to Psalm 94. Um, or it, it's the sort of psalm that if you were reading through the book of Psalms in order, you would probably read this and be like, I don't really know what this means and kind of move on without really thinking about it. You know, the psalm starts, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Um, Typically not in, in the vocabulary of American Christians, right? Um, I think for some of us, honestly, the idea of like calling on God to shine forth with, with his vengeance makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But as we come to Psalm 94 this morning, what I want to try to do for us is begin by setting this um, psalm in, in the context of the moment, the cultural moment that we're living through, because in many ways, the last couple of weeks, I think, have been particularly hard. Um, you've seen the news three weeks ago, a white nationalist gunman um, went into a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, and shot and killed almost a dozen African Americans. And then the next day, um, a shooter um, attacked a lunch at a Taiwanese church in Orange County, California, not very far from where my family used to live. And then a week or so after that, there was an attack at a school in Texas that killed 22, including 19 children. And actually, I was looking this up I, um, yesterday. There, I think there have been 24 other mass shooting incidents in the United States in the subsequent two weeks. So, um, so that's terrible. Um, and, but this isn't just about a problem with, with guns and violence. A couple of weeks ago, an independent investigation of the Southern Baptist Convention revealed that uh, leaders in the SBC, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the US, have for years been uh, covering up abuse, shielding perpetrators, intimidating victims, and maligning people who have called for help and for accountability and for reform. And it, it feels like we're living through this time, at least it feels like this to me, that it, it's like every morning I look at the news headlines in my email and think, goodness gracious, like, why is this happening and when will it stop and can we do anything about this? Um, 
and each new headline informing us of some new tragedy, you know, the question arises, how long will this go on? And, and we know that this is not the way things should be, and I think increasingly we have the sense that something should be done, and I feel like I'm seeing more and more people saying, okay, thoughts and prayers are not enough anymore. And, and, and when are we going to do something? But another part of this story that I th- think goes untold is that we seem to be increasingly going numb to these events. I, there was a report in Axios this week that basically reported that the attention span of the American public after another mass shooting at an elementary school is about two to three days. <laughs> Measured by articles being read, social media posts, that, that something like this, something awful happens, and for about two to three days we are outraged but really what's happening is that we're overwhelmed and we don't know how to deal with this level of evil. And the sheer number of horrific events continue to fill our news feeds and we are increasingly just overwhelmed by them which leads us to just sort of shutting down and moving on. So we live with this cycle of outrage and the sense that something should be done but then we move on before we can really do anything And I think the result is that we are left with this profound sense of just weariness. And it's against that backdrop that a psalm like Psalm 94 is actually incredibly useful to us. Because this psalm provides an alternative to the way that as a culture we typically deal with this, the cycle of outrage and then complaining and blaming and then just moving on. Because Psalm 94 reminds us that God is king And it reminds us that his kingship is executed through his pursuit of justice. And because of that, Psalm 94 provides us with a way to process the emotional toll that tragic event after tragic event takes on us. And it gives us the mindset that's necessary to partner with God in the long-term work that is really necessary to change the nature of the world that we live in. So, a template. How do we respond to injustice and evil in our world? And the first thing that this psalm tells us is that we cry out to God. We cry out to God. The first seven verses of the psalm are uh, what what scholars call a communal lament. And lament is not a you know, a category of prayer or language that I think we find natural. And um, communal laments are not something that we do typically very well um, in our cultural moment. But these words are written by and for God's people as we walk together through times of common suffering. As we walk together through times when it appears that those who hurt and deceive and abuse their power and perpetrate injustice and deal in corruption have won the day. How do we respond? We cry out to God. And this lament reminds us that when our hearts are broken, when we hear news of new tragedies, before we go to Twitter, before we go to Facebook, we go to God. We go to God and we cry out to him. We go to him, God himself. Verse three, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt 
with the psalmist, we plead for God to intervene. We say, God, would you please do something? Verse one and two, O God, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. I mean, doesn't that feel so different now than like five minutes ago when Danny read those words and we're like, what? But then you think about the injustice of the time that we're living through. God, please do something. This section of the Psalms, um, there are eight Psalms in a row, Psalm 93 through 100, that talk about God as a king. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 93, where it talks about God's kingship expressed as he rules over creation. And then next week in Psalm 95, we're going to see how we should praise God as a response to his kingship. But Psalm 94 is a response to God's kingship saying, God, if you are really our king, won't you please intervene in the evil of our world? Won't you please do something, God? Twice in this psalm, we see the word vengeance and, you know, oh God of vengeance. And I I think that for most of us, when we hear that phrase, oh God of vengeance, we think "That that is so strange sounding to us. I think that if we're, if we're honest, for most of us, thinking about God as a God of vengeance, you know, it doesn't quite pass the sniff test. We think of our faith in a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God who is kind even to those who oppose him. But a God of vengeance conjures up mental images of a bloodthirsty and capricious God that seems more at home in like the Greco-Roman you know, paganism of 2,000 years ago than it does... Um, characterize the God of the Bible, but the word vengeance here is connected to God's justice. To God's justice. It's saying, God, evil cannot go unpunished. God, please do something. Please do something. And before we learn how God responds to his people as we cry out to him and ask that he brings justice in response, before we turn to God's response, it's, it's worth pausing here to think about why lament is the starting point. Why, why do we start with lament when we are confronted by news of injustice? Why does the psalm tell us that when we hear news of evil and tragedy that we begin by crying out to God himself? Well, the answer, I think, is that a prayer of lament appeals to God's justice. Uh, appealing to God's justice is what prevents our desire for vengeance from coming out sideways. Because when we are confronted by the profound reality of evil in our world, it is right for us to desire justice, to to seek a response, to say something should be done. And yet if we don't begin by crying out to God as the one who justly carries out justice, then our desire for vengeance is going to come out in malformed and unhealthy ways. I don't know if you are familiar with a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, It came out in 2014 and has sold millions of copies, I think. It's a book in which the author, who's a psychiatrist, a doctor in Boston, describes the reality that trauma will have an effect on our lives even after our cognitive awareness of traumatic events has begun to fade from our memory. So things have happened to us, traumatic things that have happened 
to us will begin to uh, continue to affect us long after our mental awareness of them has kind of begun to, to loosen. Does that make sense? And so part of what happens when we fail to cry out to God for justice in the face of evil and tragedy is that our desire for justice comes out in unhealthy ways. You know, it comes out as venting our outrage on the internet. It comes out as blame shifting, blaming others for what has happened. It comes out as doling our pain with alcohol, with entertainment, with other things. It comes out as anxiety that wakes us up in the middle of the night. It doesn't go away just because we don't acknowledge it. And what's happening here in Psalm 94 is that we are being invited to acknowledge the reality that we are living through a time of incredible turmoil, and that brings with it, to a greater or lesser extent, trauma for most of us. And Psalm 94 is showing us that central to a strategy for coping with life in a time like ours is the practice of lament, of not running to Twitter to rage, but rather turning to God and saying, God, do you see this? Do you care? Are you going to do something? If we don't lament to God, we will do it in less healthy ways. If we don't cry to God for justice, we will seek vengeance in less healthy ways ourselves. But the faithful response of God's people to injustice is not having an airtight argument for the existence of injustice in the face of the goodness of God. The faithful response of God's people when we are confronted with injustice, is begin, it begins with remembering that we have a king and that we call out to him. God, do you see us? Do you care? How long will you wait? Will this go on forever? Won't you please bring justice? So we begin by crying out to God. But the second thing that this psalm tells us is that God knows, that God sees, that God cares. Having begun with a lament and crying out for, for justice, the author of the psalm reminds us that God knows. Listen again to verses 9, 10, and 11. It says, He who planted the ear, I don't know how you plant an ear, but <laughs> he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. God sees injustice in our world. He knows the depth of our despair, and he cares for those who are the victims of evil. He knows. And I think reminding ourselves that, yes, God does know what's going on is really important for us. It's really important for us because one of the conceits of our time is this unspoken accusation that we care more about justice than God does. We don't tend to say it that bluntly, but the mostly unspoken accusation that God is a little primitive in his social values and that we care more about justice and righteousness than he does. And Psalm 94 reminds us that God is not less concerned than we are with justice. God does not care less than we do. The psalm reminds us that God cares far more deeply than we do. 
the eyes with which we see injustice were shaped by the God who sees everything. The hearts which break over each new headline were formed by the one whose hearts overflowed with love to create our world in the first place. And that's what the universe is. It's an overflow of God's love. He creates the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit out of an overlove of the nature of God as a, as a communal being that, that exists eternally for all time in perfect community. The overflow of the love that God has for God's self is what creates the world in the first place. So he does not care less than we do. We cannot assume that God cares less than we do. God knows and he cares. Listen again to verses 14 and 15. He will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. God cares. So why then does God wait? If God sees and he knows and he cares and if he is able, if he is powerful, why does he wait Well, Jesus seems to answer that question in Matthew 13. Jesus tells this story, a parable. Um, he tells a parable about a man who sows a field of wheat, and this man sows the seed, uh, the wheat seed in his field, and it begins to grow, but in the middle of the night, his enemy comes and sows weeds into the middle of his field. And the weeds begin to grow up, and the servants uh, come to their master, and they ask, do you want us to go out and pull the weeds? And the master answers, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. And what Jesus, the, the, the question I think is this, what Jesus is saying I think is this, how do you bring an end to evil and injustice without annihilating everyone in the process? And if you think about that, you know, in light of another conflict in Ukraine right now, like that is literally what's going on there right now. Right? How do you end evil and injustice without annihilating us all in the process? Because, you know, <laughs> we know with you know, a fair amount of certainty that the American military could probably put an end to this conflict very quickly. But if that happens, there's a risk of even further escalation. How do you bring an end to evil and injustice without annihilating everyone in the process? And so Psalm 94 shows us that God sees, he knows, he cares, and yet he waits to root out evil once and for all so as not to annihilate us all in the process. But Psalm 94 also shows us that God will bring justice, and that's the third thing that we have to see in this passage. God will bring justice. I'm going to read again the last uh, part of the psalm, verse 16 and following. Listen. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord will wipe them out. 
the Lord will bring justice. This will not last forever. God will not wait forever. He will at last come and bring evildoers to justice. And the belief that God will one day make all things right, that he will bring final and ultimate justice is central to our response as Christians today to respond to grace to ongoing news of tragedy in our world. Let me say that again. The belief that divine vengeance will one day come is central to our ability as Christians to respond with grace now to every unfolding tragedy. You say, how does that work? Well, um, Miroslav Volf is a, um, he's a theologian. He teaches at Yale. Um, it's a subtle way of saying he's really, really smart. But Miroslav Volf is um, a Croatian. He grew up in Croatia where he lived through a time of incredible violence and he's probably best known for his book on forgiveness that is um, called Exclusion and Embrace, where he writes that belief that God is a God of vengeance who will one day end in justice is crucial to living a life of grace and forgiveness in the present moment. And I'm going to read you a quote. It's about a paragraph and a half long. It's a little bit long to read as a quote. Um, but, but listen to what he says. Listen to his argument. He says, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. I might have said that wrong. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with men in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is, the only, legitimate, is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, he says, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. Listen to this. It takes the quiet of the suburbs for the belief, uh, for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the Western mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception, if he did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. You see what he's saying? It's, it's one thing to read the news of terrible atrocities and say God would never respond to this with violence. But if you have seen your friends, your family, terribly abused, you know that something must be done to repay that level of violence. And the only thing that will prevent you from taking that justice into your own hands is the belief that there is a God who will bring justice. And Psalm 94 shows us that we can live with grace and faith in the midst of a tragic world because we have a God who sees and who cares and who will bring justice. Psalm 94 tells us that, but we living maybe 3,000 years after this psalm was written have a clearer picture 
of how that will actually work. See, living on this side of the cross, we can understand more fully how God will vanquish evil and bring justice. Because God's people in the Old Testament, um, God's people living in the Old Testament believe that these words, you know, at the, at the end of the psalm when it says that God will return and wipe out those who do evil, God's people in the Old Testament believed that they, those words would be fulfilled at the end of history. That at the end of history, God would return and wipe out those who were responsible for evil. And in doing so, I think that they may have misunderstood a couple of things. They may have simply mis, or underestimated. They underestimated the importance of the question that we asked earlier, how is it possible that God will wipe out those who perpetrate evil without annihilating all of us. And I think they perhaps overestimated their own virtue, not seeing that all of us to one degree or another are complicit in the evil and injustice of our world. And so what came as a dramatic surprise was that God did not wait until the end of the age, until the end of human history to do something about this world and its evil, but rather he enters into our world to bring an end to evil, not by wiping out evildoers, but by taking evil and injustice onto himself. And in Christ, God takes on human flesh, and he enters into our story. I mean, think about the implication of what that means. God does not remain aloof, watching from a safe distance as we hurt and abuse one another but rather he enters into our world to bring an end to evil, not by wiping out the evildoers, but by taking evil upon himself. In Christ, in Christ Jesus, God takes on our flesh. He enters into a world where evil really happens, where his friends die and he weeps, where injustice is a daily reality. God experiences all of that. And then in the greatest act of injustice in human history, God himself becomes the victim of evil and corruption as religious and political leaders use their authority to send Jesus to the cross. And there on the cross, the author of life is put to death. The God of vengeance does not retaliate. The God of power becomes powerless. And this is how God subverts evil and injustice in our world without annihilating us all in the process. He doesn't wipe it out, but is instead wiped out himself. Rather than wiping out all of us, he takes evil onto himself, and then three days later, he raises from the dead, triumphant over sin and death and evil and injustice. And about 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, which we celebrate in the church calendar today, the Holy Spirit is sent to live in individual believers, in his people, enabling us to be the kind of people who respond to evil, not just with outrage, but with patient work on behalf of victims because, yes, some things need to change in our world, but shouting that on the internet isn't going to make it happen. But God's Spirit is alive in his people, using us slowly but surely, patiently to bring justice until the day when he finally brings that work to completion. So let me tell you a couple of stories about ways in which God's people 
on the basis of belief in the message of this psalm are doing that or have done that. You know, surely in 2015, at a uh, black African-American Methodist church in Charleston, a gunman came, I think, to a prayer meeting and shot and killed many, several members of that congregation. And he was arrested and brought to an arraignment hearing the next day. The next day. And at that arraignment hearing, family members of the victims who he had killed the day before attended and stood up and said, we're here to tell you we forgive you. We're here to offer you grace instead of vengeance because we put our trust in a God who will ultimately make all things right. They did that the next day. They hadn't had the time to mourn or bury their loved ones yet. They hadn't had time to process and let things settle. They hadn't met with a, you know, anybody to coach them on what it shockingly good like PR move that would be. They just showed up and said, we forgive you. In 2006, a man who I think was the milkman went into a school of Amish children in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. And he sent all the boys out of the room and there were 10 girls left and he shot and killed five of them and injured five others before taking his own life. And um, that night, the parents of those girls who were murdered took a meal to that man's widow because they knew that as much as they were hurting, that she was hurting also. I mean, that's either insane or that's the fruit of people who believe in the goodness of God and that he will not let injustice go unpunished. We live in a world where evil is a reality. We've lived through several weeks where we have seen headlines on a regular basis that confront us with that reality in shocking detail. But as our world grows numb, Christians can buoy our neighbors by living with hope. Not by ignoring the reality of tragedy in our world, but rather because we have a God who hears us when we cry out, who knows and who cares, and who has come to bring justice in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me see if there are any questions that came in. Okay, I don't see any questions. I'm sort of shocked that after that passage and sermon that nobody has a question. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, if you have follow-up questions, you're welcome to text those, and I'll follow up with you this week. Let me pray for us as we come to the Lord's table. Oh God, all we can do sometimes is cry out, why? 
Do you see this? Do you hear us? But God, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who um, is big enough to put psalms like this in your word, that you don't ask us to deny the reality of the, the darkness of our world, but rather you enter into that darkness in order uh, to subvert it, to rescue us. And so, God, I pray um, even this morning as this feels like a heavy word that we would leave here encouraged and with hope because we know that that darkness, that evil, that injustice is not the final word. God, as we come to your table this morning, we ask that you, as we eat this bread, as we drink this wine, would be um, encouraged in ways that mere words cannot do that we would experience again the reality of Jesus' resurrect, death and resurrection on our behalf and that they might be the animating force in our lives as we go out into a world uh, where things need to change. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.